Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. I am Dom DiTola with my co-host... Chris Quinn. And we're here to talk about one of baseball's most interesting characters today. Yeah, one of the most interesting pitchers, I think, ever. Honestly, the... uh, Well, we'll get into that a little bit later, but... uh, The spectrum of his career and off-field activities. Yes, is quite vast and quite fascinating. We are, of course, talking about former... Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Doc Ellis. Yes. The uh God, he needs like a good nickname, you know, the acid fireballer. I don't Acid Fireballer. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Something like that. He's uh most famous for one thing, but this man led a very interesting life. Yeah. What he was famous for, um, when we get into researching these guys, sometimes you kind of know just like the the what's on top and researching him was one of the most interesting for me because I didn't know all this stuff about him. All the only thing I knew was him throwing this no hitter, but man, he is one of the most interesting guys. I, I really was into it. Oh, completely. Like the life that this man led mm-hmm. was topsy turvy, ups and downs, but he did it his way. Yeah, he, he, he always it did it his way. Yeah, that's great. I like that. All right, let's get started. Nobody puts Doc Ellis in a corner. <laughs> that might be his catchphrase. Right? No. Uh, born March 11th, 1945 in Los Angeles High School, a 6'3", 205-pound fireballer, uh, rose through the ranks with his masterful pitching ability. Well, let's talk about him in high school because you brought up something that I didn't necessarily know. Uh, no. Um, he got busted for smoking weed. Yes, he uh, was very into alcohol and drugs as a teenager. Um, he refused to play on his high school's baseball team due to uh, perceived racism from some of the white players on there, but was known through playing in other kind of sandlot leagues around Los Angeles at the time to be very talented. And you had said he got caught smoking weed his senior year. Yes. And... The ultimatum was, and kids, if you're listening, if you're talented, you can get out of a lot of crap and be rewarded for poor behavior. The principal told him, you're either going to be expelled or you're going to play for the baseball team here your senior year. Yep. And so he, he chose baseball. Yeah. And I think that's when he really became the pitcher that we see because he was throwing fast in the high school ranks, you know? Yeah, and he uh, parlayed that into a stint at, uh, I believe, L.A. Harbor College mm-hmm. um, for a couple of years. And uh, after that, you know, you can see his talent already by then. Um, parlayed that into a contract signing with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yes, and yes. this is when he goes into the minor leagues, and I feel like he really becomes the man he's going to be. Yeah, Doc was exposed to a lot of... Um, shall we say, in these smaller towns in the American South in the 1960s, um, a lot of uh, de jure racism as far as it's the law that he didn't see in California or it's more de facto. Yes. Where Where he would stand up to racism and be like, well, I'm not going to play in this game. And then he was in these Carolina leagues like we were talking about before we started recording. Um, He essentially was it was segregated still yes exactly and he had never seen that type of segregation so out in the open before yeah so blatant the blatant racism the blatant racism that he saw really upset him and 
the guy that he was, he didn't stand for it. Yes, it changed who he was, and he decided to start making these little stances and trying to get the black athlete, the black baseball player, to be thought as as the same because since Jackie Robinson they were talking about the conditions really didn't change like no they broke the color barrier and then that was it like they would still treat them like shit they would still segregate them they would still only get one or two black players on a team yeah kind of thing um uh he basically stood up for himself and yeah that was in in a time where standing up for yourself wasn't a very popular thing no not at all especially for black athletes exactly like in the minor leagues, he went and charged a heckler in the stands with a baseball bat. Yeah. Like, Doc, for all of his other faults, he did it his way, like I said before. Like, Doc was Doc. He, that's exactly who he was. Yeah. <laughs> so, a couple of years in the minors, and then he comes up. Yeah. Uh, he uh, came up, I believe, in uh, 1968, in June, as a midseason call-up. Started thrown out of the bullpen. Uh, 1969, he finally cracks Pittsburgh's starting rotation. Yep. So Pittsburgh had won the World Series in 1960, kind of with an older roster outside of like Roberto Clemente and Bill Mazeroski. And they're starting to rebuild again. And Doc is one of those players. And they're starting to rebuild again with a lot of really great African-American and Latin players. Yes. And Doc is kind of the centerpiece of this with guys like Willie Stargell and players who went on to have really successful careers. So by 1970, you know, he's having a really, really good year. And then what happens in 1970... Is kind of what defines him, no matter what, for the rest of his life, for exactly. better or for worse. Exactly. So he's in... Uh, they're playing the pods. Playing this the is a very embarrassing moment for Padres fans. <laughs> and as a Padres fan, I'll just bring this up, this horrible statistic, which keeps me awake some nights, which it shouldn't because it's just a damn game. They have not only been no hit more than any team in Major League history, they have never thrown a no-hitter. And Doc Ellis, who's emerging as one of the National League's best starting pitchers at this time, pitches a no-hitter against them. Which is fine, which is run-of-the-mill. The, mill. the yeah. Padres are in their second year of even existence yeah. at that point. It's the first game of a doubleheader. I can live with that. But Doc's no-hitter is probably more special and more incredible than any no-hitter that has ever been thrown in Major League Baseball history. I have to agree with that. Um, so uh, do you want to tell the story, or should we just pepper stuff we'll, in? Or? We'll pepper it in. They fly right. into San Diego. Um, on an off day. On an off day. And as a pitcher, you get off days. But I think it was the whole team had no, an off yeah, day. No, it yeah, was, it was just an off day. They had you know, flown in on a road trip. You have an off day, do what you want, show up at the ballpark tomorrow, have your stuff together. And he goes to wherever. Well, no. Does he go to L.A.? He goes to L.A. Okay. Because, you know, obviously that's where Doc's from. Yeah. So he's just going to kick it. Going home. Yeah. L.A., I think, is like two hours up the coast. Yeah. Probably at that time, maybe even shorter due to the lack of traffic. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so he goes to L.A. and he decides he's going to have some fun, so he drops acid. Yeah, he drops acid, everyone. On uh, an off day, which is fine. Dropping acid when you have nothing to do and just want to chill is a fine activity for any American. That's right. When you want to fight the dragon, that's your that's your prerogative. Yeah, you you do you. Exactly. Concerts are better on acid. That's all I'm saying. But what I found to be ridiculous is his take on this. So 
takes acid. He essentially falls asleep. Yeah. Wakes up. And Thinking it's the same day. Yeah. And they're like, hey, you got to be at the ballpark. And he's like, the acid was just like, boom. Yeah. So, so what essentially happened is he goes to one of uh, his lady friend's houses. Yes. He goes, he parties, he drinks, he smokes, he drops acid. Takes a little nap, wakes up, thinks it's still the same day. Because he still thinks it's June 11th, okay? Yes. June 12th, what it actually is, he wakes up in the morning, he drops more acid. Which, hey, go ahead. I was going to say, he thinks it's still the 11th. He thinks he still has pretty much like 20 hours or whatever, you know? And after he drops acid, he meets, you know, kind of his lady friend. You know, they're chit-chatting. And she says you didn't just drop acid, did you? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, you do know you're pitching today, right? Against the Padres. Yeah, she's like, you got to be at the ballpark in like a couple hours. Yeah, and he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, it's June 12th. He's like, no, it isn't. And she hands him the day's newspaper, and there is his name that says Doc Ellis starting pitching against the San Diego Padres in the first game of a doubleheader. Yep. So he goes to the ballpark. He, he fl- No, he flies. Oh, yeah, he flies. you can't drive from LA to San Diego at all on acid. Yes, yeah. He he catches a flight. He he lands. He gets to the ballpark and what he says pretty much as soon as he gets in the locker room, he his cuz here's something about Doc Ellis is he made the statement that he had never pitched a professional game sober. Yeah. So his teammates saw him show up and they're just like, "Man, Doc is on something." He's but on something. They didn't they know didn't what know. it was. Even the Padres players exactly. who were playing against him were like, "Well, that's just him. I don't know what he's doing." Yes. And for those of you who are listening who don't really um, have uh, an understanding of baseball history at this time, from like the 50s to the 70s, this is when drugs in baseball were like a big thing, particularly amphetamines. Yes. And greenies, which are known as dexamil and benzos, benzadrine, which are kind of uppers for you, but not necessarily performance enhancers. A lot of guys would take these because they were hard drinkers and they have to play a day game the next day. And Doc really liked that because he's a drinker and he needs the uppers the next day. So he gets to Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego. Um, He left LA um, at 3 p.m., Yep. got to the ballpark at 4.30 for the 6.05 first game. He goes out, warms up, People know that he's on something, like yes, you said. that's the thing. They, they know something's a little off. And the clubhouse attendant's like, okay, he's a little off. Let, I have this pouch, this magical pouch with elixirs in it. Yep. It's full of Dexamil, the greenies. So Doc takes a bunch of greenies, coffee, helps it you know, get into your system faster, does that. And he's raring and ready to go to pitch a game on acid. On acid and amphetamines, essentially. Yeah. And on uppers. And he was talking about how many pills he was taking at this point because when he would first come into the league, he would take like one or two and be like, oh, I'm good for the day. And he said by the 70s, he was taking like 10. Yeah. And, and you know, and it was, he was taking that at such an amount that I feel like he was definitely feeling it on his. It's interesting because I don't feel like he it put anything on his fastball, but the concentration that guys get from this and the staying in the moment, I feel like. Is I, I feel like the... Not the acid, obviously. <laughs> yeah. No, and that well, that's my whole point is I feel like had he not taken those, yes. it would have been an absolute shit show. Yeah, they probably would have pulled him first inning. 
Oh, absolutely. Because he, it was kind of a shit show. So, it, well, yeah, and I, I will get into that yeah. and why I think it's more amazing than any perfect game ever thrown yeah. in the major leagues. So he goes out there tripping balls and high as balls on, this, on these amphetamines and starts pitching. And not only does he start pitching, his team is giving him some run support. Yeah. So he's winning the game. But he's also getting Padres out and not getting Padres out. And for those of you who don't know, the difference between a no-hitter and a perfect game is a perfect game is where you put nobody on base. It's 27 guys up, 27 guys down. No walks. No, no walks, no errors, no yeah. hit batters. Doc, and look, I can throw a baseball 60 feet 6 inches. I can throw a baseball 60 feet 6 inches on acid. But when I throw a ball 60 feet, six inches on acid, I have no idea where that ball is going to go. Yes. And to put this in perspective, during this game, which is a no-hitter, by the way, and also the record was broken for walks against the Padres by A.J. Burnett with nine. God damn it! (laughs) Doc walked eight guys and hit one batter. Yep. And what makes this even more fascinating to me is he doesn't allow a hit. No. They couldn't, they couldn't clock him. But what's fascinating is, like, it blows my absolute mind, is in Major League Baseball, pitching with runners on base, especially in this era where base stealing is a thing, unlike yeah. now, which I find absolutely abhorrent, He's getting guys out with guys on base and not letting them get hits or score runs. Or He's closing or, out innings where a guy, two guys are on the bag, and you're just like, man, this is like some top-level pitching. And then he throws one completely outside, and you're like, what is happening? Because the footage of it is a little grainy. It's yeah. not TV, but they started recording it. And you could just see he's just a little off. He's, he's off. Like everyone was saying, it's like Doc is on something. We don't know what it is. Exactly. But this is just him pitching normally. I bet it's hard to dig in at that. You know, you're like, I'm going to crowd the plate against him. And he's just like, Doc's um, explanation of the batters coming up, he goes, I couldn't see them. I could just see what side, if they were... side of the plate. Righty or a lefty. And then I knew not to throw more right or, you know. And he was talking about how... The catcher, Jerry May, what helped him was his fingers were taped. Yep. So he could see the fingers so he could know what pitches to throw and, like, you know, shake him off or not and be like. But when you're on acid, you're just like, whatever he's calling, I'm just going to throw up there. Yeah, exactly. So, Jerry May, kudos to you yeah. for whatever the hell you did. Uh, one of the players, I bet you'll know his name, came up to him in the first inning and goes, you got a no-no going. Yeah, I think it was Dave Cash. The se- No, it wasn't the first inning, but like Dave Cash was like a rookie. There yeah, like he was a rookie. Ba- or, I don't think he was playing second base because I think Mazeroski was there. But he was a rookie, and he was like, you got that no-no going. And he's like, man, bullshit. Yeah, and people are like, why are you talking to him? Yeah, because that's was, always bad luck. But he was so on acid and so kind of not himself, I bet, that he was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, I literally can't even comprehend what you're saying right now. Right? Like, you don't, he's not thinking about it because he was saying he thought Richard Nixon, who was the president at the time, was the umpire. Yep. He thought one of the batters was Jimi Hendrix swinging a guitar. How do you get guys out? 
constantly. Nine innings. Nine innings. Yeah. He re- he got twenty seven outs, tripping balls. Yep. With amphetamines, yeah. I can't even. I can't even do this. The greenies is like a rocket up the ass, man. That's like, what uh, they say. He's entered another dimension, basically, and. Thanks to some great defensive plays by Mazeroski and Matty Alou, obviously, because yes. like every no hitter or perfect game you see, it's never just a guy striking out twenty people. It's always like an um, um, like maybe two or three amazing defensive plays which preserve it. Yes, and they get to the end of the game and get the final out, and Doc Ellis has not allowed a hit, and the Pirates win. Yeah, I just. Oh, it's such a great sports. It's crazy. Like, how do you even? (sighs) I'm just flabbergasted by this. Yeah, I I can't even describe it. Like, if some guy throws a no hitter just on amphetamines or coke, I'm like, oh, it's the '80s or it's the '70s. I, I I understand, but like, just to play baseball on acid. Just to do anything on acid. Yeah, it, it brings up brings up a story. I was talking with my dad about who we were gonna do this do this episode on. He goes, Doc Ellis. Oh, that's interesting. When I was pitching in high school, my entire infield was on acid. <laughs> and I was like, seriously? He was like, yeah. There was only two errors in which you'd be like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like he was like, a guy literally went to make a stab at a ball that was like two feet to his right and he was just like looking at it like how did I miss that and the coach was like what the hell is up with you guys but he said that they won that there wasn't really anything crazy other than these two little plays and that was it and Doc had talked about during that game he thought a ball that a guy hit was like screamed at him so he dove out of the way and it it was a little dribbler it wasn't even to him exactly wasn't even there it's it's one of those things where the acid just I can't even believe the the mindset of being up there, you know, on the mound. You're fucking higher than everybody. You're it's it's such a weird thing. Well, he said he chewed his gum into dust. Yeah, when he was on the mound that day. And what do you even do after that? I mean, I I can't even comprehend. Well, this is at the beginning of his career. Yeah, and I mean, he's a, starting to be a winning pitcher. He finished 1970. With a 13 and 10 record. Yes. With one of those wins being the no hitter on ass. Which one of those? Yes. Um, (laughs) But it's ridiculous. He keeps building off of this. And it's kind of almost sad in a way for Doc because, like you said, he never pitched a professional game sober. Yeah. Pitching a no hitter on acid is like almost a green light for him to keep doing what he's doing. Exactly. And he was such a talented player. And the following year in 1971 is not only when he reaches his career pinnacle, but the Pirates reach a pinnacle as well because he's firing in all cylinders and so is the rest of the Pittsburgh team. Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here. And uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. Like... That year, he finishes 19-9. and nine. He's the starter in the All-Star game. Well, I want to talk about this. Yeah, let's so. talk about that All-Star game because it's a pretty important point in baseball history. Um, it's coming out, and I forget who the other pitcher was. Um, 
but it was a white. Uh, Vita blue. Vita, Vita blue for the A's. Vita blue, but then the other pitcher that he was um, in competition for starting for. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying because the Reds, so the way baseball works is the managers, like the head managers in an all-star game every year are the American and National League managers from the World Series teams the previous year. Yeah. So the Cincinnati Reds had made the World Series and lost in 1970 to the Orioles. But so Sparky Anderson, who is the Reds manager and future manager of the Tigers, Hall of Fame guy, um, Doc Ellis calls Sparky Anderson out. And says he doesn't think that they would ever have two black pitchers face each other as the starters of the All-Star game. And people were talking about this as a publicity move Mm -hmm. because he kind of shouldn't have been the starter of that game. Yeah. There was another, I forget who it was, but there was another pitcher who had just a better record, better ERA. Probably like Tom Seaver or Steve I think Carlton. it was Steve. Yeah. yeah. I mm-hmm. think it was Seaver. And but, but Doc up until the All-Star break in 71 was, was really good. He was the second best. That's what people yeah. were saying. And he made this play of like, hey, I doubt they'll play two black pitchers against each other and pretty much forced their hand like, well, shit, now we kind of have to and, or, or we're racist. And it's one of those things where it's this movement in baseball that needed to happen, but kind of happened in a, a weird kind of like way. Well, have you ever seen him pitching in that all-star game? No, I didn't see that. So it's like a famous all-star game moment. He's pitching against Reggie Jackson of the A's, and they're at old uh, Briggs Stadium, Tiger Stadium at the time. Doc throws one into Reggie, and Reggie takes it into the upper deck. It's one of the most mammoth home runs just ever in baseball. Yeah. Like, he just serves him up one, and it's Reggie's pitch, and he takes him downtown. <laughs> like, but, yeah, he he forced through his actions a very significant moment in baseball. And this is one of these things where I didn't know before researching Doc Ellis about all of these things that he essentially stood for and had these little these little battles that really meant something for these black players coming up and the way that they are treated throughout major league baseball and major sports, you know, eighties, nineties coming up. He know? was very vocal yes. about about things. He was not afraid to say things which other minority players were thinking and wanted to say, but were just too afraid or didn't want to make public. Yeah, they didn't want the backlash or they didn't believe in it enough to to have that backlash. Exactly. And he he took it all and he didn't care. I mean, even Jackie Robinson on occasion would tell him like, "Look, I agree with what you're doing, but man, you are really going going for it. Yeah. Like you are really pissing a lot of people off. And to Doc's credit, he said he didn't care. Yeah. Well, it's not even that he didn't care. He wanted the image of the black athlete to change because... And he wanted it out in the open. Yes. That was what his main goal was. He wanted it out in the open so people could see it. Yeah. So people could hear it. So people could identify with it. And, you know... He's at the top of his game in 71, like I was saying, is that he used his platform for what he thought was right. And kudos to him for doing it. You know, good for you. Good on you. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those, there's all these little stories like he was wearing rollers in the Pirates uh, bullpen, I believe, and they told they essentially were trying to suspend him for ten games because yeah, he was literally wearing yeah. rollers in his hair. And there was kind of like an anti-gay, anti-black sent like sediment that that 
they were like, why would a man wear rollers? And then on top of that, like, because it's very much in the black community that they were like, yeah. So he was proud of who he was exactly for all of his faults to his credit, as far as like his personal actions, he was never ashamed of who he was for better or worse. You know, he was never ashamed. He was like, no, this is who I am. You can go and fuck yourself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> which, which in some of his baseball career kind of was. Oh, it hurt him definitely. Yes, yes. It, and it hurt his on-field play and everything like that. Yes. But um, back to the 71 Pirates, oh, as yes. we were discussing, um, they're rolling through the season. I mean, they are dominating. Divisional play came into play after the or during the 1969 season due to expansion in San Diego and Montreal, where – they're leading the NL East basically the whole year. Yes. They have a lineup with Clemente, Stargell, uh, Renee Stennett, Manny Sangian. I mean, they are like a powerhouse. And Doc is the ace of the staff, yeah. setting career highs in two, with 226 innings pitched. He is Danny Murtaugh, the manager's horse. He is that guy. When you want to turn around a losing streak – you send Doc to the mound every fourth day to get things back on track. And it's not only his pitching, it was the way he had the locker room. They were talking about that pitcher, that Pitts, Pittsburgh Pirates locker room. They were just like partying all the time, but they were like brothers in the sense that they just all like loved each other and like there wasn't really much. It was like, so for those of you who don't know, the 1979 Pirates won the World Series. Doc Ellis was not on that team. Really... There were a few guys left, like Stargell. I mean, yeah. he was the leader and all that stuff. The We Are Family Bucks. They had the unity part down. Yes. Not, I mean, Dave Parker, the Cobra, one of the best players, not even in the Hall of Fame who should be. I mean, it was Coke-fueled, but it was very unity-based. I was going to say, very party, party-centric, party but it, they were definitely on each other's team. Yeah, and in know? 71, you had that unity without the marketing ploy of Sister Sledge in that song, yes, essentially. Yes. And, I mean, Roberto Clemente's on that team and what I'll discuss afterwards. Yes. But they win the NL East. They go to the playoffs. They play the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, in the league championship series. Doc Ellis starts game two, wins game two. The Pirates win that series against uh, the Willie Mays and Bobby Bonds Giants, where Gaylord Perry, famous spitballer, is the ace of that staff. Yep. They go to the 71 World Series. I don't know if it's the innings pitched or what happened during the season or just his body starting to break down, but Doc is starting to get some elbow pain. And he goes into game one against the Orioles, who were a powerhouse at that time. They had just won, come off the 70 World Series. They had won in 66. They had gone to the World Series in 1969 but lost to the Amazing Mets. I mean, this is like... Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson. I mean, the staff of Quayar and Palmer. I mean, a, uh, a and great McNally. team I mean, all around. This was like you—you you almost think, even though they won three World Series from 1966 to 1983, that the Orioles underachieved. Oh yeah. Doc goes out in Game One, and you know his arms giving him issues. He never admitted to it. He was a strong advocate. He he chalks it up more to his sickle cell trait as to why his body was kind of breaking down. And he, later in his career and even after, he was a big advocate for sickle cell. I think he even testified in front of Congress. Yeah, I think so too. Goes out in game one, gets shelled, and doesn't start the rest of the series. But 
Luckily for the Pirates, when you have Roberto Clemente, who is probably the most revered player in any sport in Pittsburgh's history of yes. all sports that's not named Mario Lemieux. I that's mean, true. I mean, it's well, it's just interesting with Doc who who got him all the way to to the World Series, and you're right, they pretty much had to close him close him down for the rest of the season, the, that series, because his elbow just went out. Yeah, and to Clemente's credit, he was World Series MVP. The Pirates won in an upset in seven games. Yep. They brought home the title. But what is even more incredible about that 71 Pirates team is the fact that they were the first team in an early September game to field an all-minority lineup. Yes. When Nine. Danny Murtaugh filled out that lineup card, every player who was starting was either black or Hispanic. Yes. And it's, they, it's funny because there's a story about it. I don't know if you saw, but one of the players on the team, one of the clubhouse attendants, because he had seen Murtaugh's lineup card and yep. knew what he was going to do. I don't even think Murtaugh knew what he was going to do. No, they and were, a lot of the players said that. Yeah. They just, he just was putting out the players that were available, ready to play. Exactly. And one of the clubhouse attendants, jokingly, not like being mean, but he had seen it and he knew what was going to happen. He said, looks like the Homestead Grays are playing tonight. Yep. And for those of you who don't know, the Homestead Grays were a Negro Leagues team, which Josh Gibson was famous for playing for, I believe, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So he said, looks like the Grays are playing tonight. And the guy was talking about, um, I forget the player's name, but he was saying like, I don't understand that reference. Yeah, he didn't understand it until like the third inning. Yeah. And he was he like looked around, he's like, oh, we're all black or and or Hispanic. Yeah, exactly. And it it's funny because um they were talking to like Steve Blass, who was one of the white starters on the team, uh, starting pitcher, and a couple of the other white players, and they said, We really didn't even notice. No. We just thought the pirates were playing tonight. Yeah, exactly. Like they had no idea. Yeah. I mean, and it's and funny it, about that game is they got down early. I think they were like down seven, seven nothing. to nothing. Yeah, yeah and the they won inning. nine to seven. Yeah, it's one of these. It's one of those moments in, in sports that they didn't see coming, like the no hitter on acid. Exactly, but literally changed the way they're like, oh shit! Like literally, this is the first time nine minorities, nine black players are playing all on the team, and they go out and not only win, but come back in this epic game. And you know who started that game? No, I don't. Doc Ellis. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think he was their only black pitcher. Um, I, I believe I'm not, so. I'm not a black a, starter, I believe. Black yeah. starter, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but it's one of those things where he he had, and that this locker room of Clemente and him and these other... Stargell, yeah. Stargell. They had this group that really were going to go on and be a great team. And th that's what's so cool about sports is like it breaks down things like that. Yeah. Because you're in the foxhole, not like wartime foxhole, but you're in situations where you're around people that you normally wouldn't interact with, especially at that time in your daily life. Yeah. And you just see them as teammates and it doesn't, rub you the wrong way you you're almost at the point of not noticing or even not to say not caring but you're just so unaware in a good way you know well it's it's um and i i equate it to comedy where you're almost like on a team with these people and race and and sexual orientation and all these things that sometimes like not even like uh divide people but 
like uh, ostracized people just don't exist because we're all on this one team yeah. already. And then it's it's a really interesting sports and comedy. You're all going you're all going through the same thing together, even though you're different. And you have that relatability factor. Yeah, the the relatability to the experiences that we all have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what Doc, through a lot of his career, put this to the forefront. And I have to keep bringing it up to change the way that black athletes were treated. Yeah, and he took a lot of heat for that. Yes, and he just was above it. He didn't let it steal a shine even though it probably affected him personally but uh after 71 he's a world series champion he's the ace of a world series champion staff the problem is the pirates kind of run in to the beginnings of the big red machine and the cincinnati reds so from 72 to 75 he's still winning pitcher i mean he's 34 and 30 but in 72 and 75 they win their divisions again the nl east the Reds are coming out of the West and they're coming in hot. Yeah. Because they've assembled one of the best lineups ever. You got Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Dan Dreesen, Dave Concepcion. I mean, you are Ken Griffey's dad. Yeah. You are fielding Tony Perez. You are fielding one of baseball's all time great lineups. And because of this, and Doc used to get the red ass when it came to the Pirates facing the Reds because the Pirates would often lose to the Reds. Yes, almost all the time. And that made him very angry. The thing that, and he talks about this, when his teammates were losing, they would be friendly with the Reds because it was almost like they would want to get on their team or they wanted them to respect them. And he, it made him so mad. He was like, these guys are coming in here, kicking our asses, talking shit, and then you guys are kissing their asses. Exactly. And that led to one of the craziest games yeah, and he has two of the craziest games ever. Well, he has two of the craziest games ever, but there's an incident at Riverfront Stadium um, before this game Oh, happens. yes, okay. Let's yes. talk about this. Okay. Him, uh, I believe Willie Stargell and uh, Rene Stennett, all black players for the Pirates, they go to Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. A security guard doesn't think they should be allowed in because they don't have their ID, they don't have the credentials to enter the ballpark in the facility. And Doc's pretty drunk. Doc is hammered, as he's known to do. Yes. And uh, instead of handling the situation calmly and saying, like, look, go ask Danny Murtaugh, who's in there. Yeah, we're all players we, for the we Pirates. We play for the Pirates. Yeah. I'm sure this attendant probably didn't know who they were. Like, of. I'll give that leeway just yeah. for this story. Why not? Although, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Doc is hammered and things get out of hand very quickly. Well, he starts like berating this security guard and then starts showing him his World Series ring. Yep. And being like, how the hell did I get this, you idiot? And he's yeah. saying shit like this. And then the security guy's just like, okay, I'm going to yeah. mace you in the face. It's like South Park with that mall security guard macing that little girl. It's like, move along, sir. Exactly. No, because it seems like the situation could have been completely averted. If Cooler the... heads should have prevailed. Exactly. Let's just say. Exactly. But both, I feel like both him, the security guard, and Doc were just like ready to get into it. It was just two people on a bad day that got together. Doc gets maced, which even maced and then arrested. Arrested and fuels his hatred even more for the Reds. Yes. And 
the Reds sued him for assaulting that security guard, but then Doc countersues them, and then it all goes away when the Reds just issue him an apology, which probably makes him hate them even more. Exactly. He was like, why are we backing down? That, and this is his mindset because I feel like he was on a lot of amphetamines. He was on probably. a lot of coke. So he was very much in the mindset of wanting to battle. Yeah. he. You look at it throughout his career and how he grew up and how he lived his life. He was always ready to throw down and always ready to fight any perceived real or not real injustices that were directed towards him. Exactly. He always he always had that chip on his shoulder, shall we say. Yeah. And after that happens, there is a game where they are playing the Reds where he had an even more interesting stat line. Yes. So before this uh, game even started, he was kind of talking shit to the Reds um, when they were warming up, and he goes, I'm going to plunk every single one of you. And they thought he was just like, yeah, whatever, like, you know, that's Doc. And For those of you who don't know, plunk means when a pitcher uh, throws at a batter intentionally and tries to hit him with a baseball. Yes. Yeah. Um, And the only, uh, we were talking about this before, the only guy on the Reds he didn't want to hit. Right. It was Pete Rose. The only guy he respected was uh, Gambling Addict and Charlie Hustle. Well, they, they almost had the same kind of attitude. They did. They really did. And which, I think that's probably why he hated the Reds but liked or respected, respected Pete I think, Rose. Yeah. Is the fact that Pete was probably the only Reds player who saw the Pirates players kissing their ass and said, get the hell away from me. Exactly. Exactly. So he proceeds to flat out throw at every single Red. And this is something that he later in life regrets because he said he was so jacked up on greenies and possibly Coke and maybe some alcohol that he was throwing not only intentionally at them, but intentionally to hurt them. To hurt them. Because like they're, they're in baseball, the unwritten rules about throwing at guys. Like if you throw at a guy, you want to hit him in the ass. You want to hit him in the rib cage and you want him to take the base. You don't want to hit him in the hands. You don't want it to go anywhere near the shoulders. Anything in that. Anything above the chest yeah. is like a no-no. Even if you're throwing at a guy intentionally, you don't want to do that. Yes. You want to hit him in the legs, in the in the uh, backside. You, you want to hit him in the I was going to say, you see the guys get in these older games, you see them getting hit in that upper back, and you just don't see that anymore because I feel like Doc and some of these kind of crazier or pitchers would really go for their heads. Yeah, no, and I mean, May 1st, 1974 is when this fracas takes place so he hits rose he hits joe morgan he hit he uh walks dan dreesen after trying to hit him he said he couldn't hit he him couldn't hit yeah him. i love that dreesen just keeps dodging or no him. he hit dreesen and then he walked tony perez okay. that's who it okay. was so he walks tony perez with the bases loaded so he walks in a run yeah after hitting three batters and then he tried to hit johnny bench in the head and that's when danny murtaugh just threw his hands in the air and said I'm done. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. Just can't do it. I feel like two batters before he realized what he was doing, and then he was like, well, let's see if he stops. And then when he threw at Johnny Bench, he was just like, get this guy the fuck out of here. He faced five batters, and this is his line score. Zero hits, one walk, one run, one hit batsman, or four hit batsmen, or three hit batsmen, because he tried to hit Johnny Bench. Oh, yeah. 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 That is absurd. Yes. That is so absurd. And that was the thing was he came in 
ready to do that. And it's such an interesting take where I feel like he kind of, and we had these this episode early with uh, Charles Haley, where he tried to take this almost psychotic approach of bringing his team together, and I feel like it really didn't work. No. Um, it, Haley worked because he was so good. Yeah. And there were a lot of other people who were, shall we say, under some sort of other influences. Oh, yeah. That's a good around one. Around him. Yeah. By this point in Pittsburgh, I mean, this is 74. By the end of the 75 season, Doc is gone. That's what they I mean. get rid it, of him. It changes the, the locker room. And I wanted to, because I couldn't uh, pinpoint this, or I forgot to look it up. But when did uh, Clemente die? I think after 72 or 73. Because they said when Clement, after Clemente died, Doc's um, drug abuse went like from fucking 1 to 10. Yeah. Like he really took it because him and Clemente and, and um, another guy were like really close. And yeah. they, after he died, it just changed the way he felt about life. Yeah, life. Not even baseball, but yeah. just life. I mean, so by 75, the Pirates have had enough of him. They asked him to go to the bullpen, and he refused. Yeah, and Murtaugh suspended him for a game. Yeah. And, you know, he was saying, oh, this is racist. Oh, this is bad. And it's more or less them going, no, you're a loose cannon. Like, this has nothing to do with any of that. You need to handle your own stuff. Yes. And what they end up doing in the 75 offseason is he is traded to – George Steinbrenner's New York Yankees. Which people still say is probably the weirdest trade. Like when they when it was coming out, people were like, wait, Doc is gonna play for the Yankees? And it, it's an odd trade because of what the Pirates gave up. It's not necessarily Doc going to the Yankees because he was traded for Doc Medich, another starting pitcher from New York. Interesting fact about this: the Pirates traded Ken Brett, George Brett's brother, okay, in this trade. But the main piece of this and a huge cog in those late 70s, early 80s Yankees dominant teams also came with them from Pittsburgh, Willie Randolph. Oh, Willie sure. Randolph was the hotshot prospect, but also a throw-in. They were so sick of Doc that they gave up a future all-star and one of the best second basemen of the 1980s just to get rid of him, yeah. just to not deal with him. Like, And it almost would have been a... Uh, not an even trade, but almost like uh, the Pirates would have lost out on if it was just pitcher for pitcher. Yeah. But they threw in, and it, that's what's crazy about that trade. I always thought it was the more the lines of this crazy Doc going to the Yankees, but I feel like when he got there, he realized like everybody was doing drugs. Yeah, and I uh, to Doc's credit, though, and this is what I always find fascinating because this is kind of when he gets a second win in his career. Yep. In 76... The Yankees are coming off basically like 12 years of just mediocre play. Mm -hmm. All of the glory from the 50s and early 60s is gone. But Steinbrenner's spending money. Steinbrenner cares about the team. Whether you like it or not, the guy would always spend money to put a competitive product on the field. Yeah. By 76, they're humming. Like, they're, they're doing things. And Doc has a mid-career renaissance. He goes 17 and 8. Yeah, he's comeback player of the year. His best season. He 3.19 ERA in the ALCS against the Royals, he starts a game and wins. Yeah. But then in the World Series, who do they run into? 
Those goddamn Cincinnati Reds. I feel like it's not even the the pirate, but I mean, obviously the Pirates and the Reds and that, but like Doc versus the Reds was a big one, you know? Yeah, and they because got they, swept. He they lost the start. Smashed him. He, they they bowled him over. Yeah, I think he I think he lasted like three and a quarter inning or something really. Yeah, like three and a third. Yeah, three and a third. Excuse me, um, but he. It's one of these things where. He never had a good World Series. No, he never had that one shining moment in the World Series, and he's kind of like left out of that conversation. Yes. I mean, you would think, you kind of want to think, everybody knows him for the San Diego thing. Yes. Or the throwing at all the Reds players, or getting maced outside a stadium. People would probably see him in a different light if he just had one great... If he just had that one World Series game. Yeah. Even though he was a World Series champion in 71, if he just had that one game where everything was going right for him. Yes. And after 76, though, he has contract disputes with Steinbrenner. And he thinks he should be getting more money. And he doesn't like the... He has some toss-ups with the uh, manager, Billy... Billy Martin. Billy Martin. Billy Martin had a lot of toss-ups with everybody. I was going to say, it, it was this classic era of the Yankees almost being like a half joke with Billy Martin as their coach, and like he would get into these... Getting t- fired. Tufts with Steinbrenner and like Just all this... Disliking Reggie Jackson. Yeah, and- just like the weirdest shit back then, but it kind of fueled this doc being like hey this is slightly racist or this is i'm not getting what i deserve yeah trade me and it's like well you you would get what you deserve if you could just stay sober for one out of every five days yeah that's there that was something else that they were kind of becoming more not they became it became more known that players were getting really fucked up all the time yeah and he was kind of king shit of that yes definitely for, for better or worse for better or for worse so they trade him to uh, Oakland Oakland for uh interesting trade by the way they trade him for Mike Torres I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Torres but in 77 Torres goes to the Yankees starting on the starting staff and wins a world series with them the following year he signs with Boston and the reason I bring this up is I know we had talked in past podcasts about guys like switching teams in that era and how to especially a rival like that, how it just didn't happen. Yeah. But Torres goes to Boston and starts lighting it up, like the Red Sox in 78. They have like a 12-game lead in July, August over the Yankees. And this is when Billy Martin is melting down over Reggie. This is where Thurman Munson hates everybody. The Yankees are like Chernobyl ready to melt down, but they stay in the race. And Boston, this is the curse of the Bambino era, starts losing. Exactly. And the reason I bring this up is... At the end of the season, the Red Sox win the final game and the Yankees lose, so they have to play a one-game playoff for the NL East. Mike Torres starts game 163 for Boston. Oh, wow. And that's the Bucky Dent game. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's, sure. that's how it kind of all ties together. Sorry to go on that weird tangent. But ah, I love it. That was great. So he gets traded to the A's and... He clashes with their owner, Charlie Finley. And he's starting to unravel. Yeah, it, it's... It's gotten bad for him yeah. as far as off-field stuff, as far as the drug and alcohol abuse. They asked him to like chart his pitches or just like kind of chart his workouts and you yep. know all that mm-hmm. shit. And he essentially takes all these charts and sets them on fire in the middle of the ro- locker room and sets off the sprinklers. And yeah. he talks about <laughs> this in, 
in later in life and he was like it was without a doubt the craziest thing i did in a baseball uniform like which is hilarious because the man threw a no hitter on ass i was gonna say like <laughs> but he just felt like he was so out of his mind that like what he was doing was yeah. just and and you can see that people are kind of sick of him he got in yes. a fight he was told not to bring any booze on a plane into canada and he starts drinking on the plane yeah and Teams just are fed up with him, even though he's a winning pitcher. For the last three years of his career, 71 to, 77 to 79, he had a 35 and 31 record. Yeah. I mean, that's above 500. He's still an effective player. And what was he born in, 45? So in 77, he's 32 years old. He's still got some seasons left in yeah, him. Yeah, definitely. And Oakland gets rid of him. He goes to Texas. Texas gets rid of him. He the, goes to the Mets. The there was Mets a, get rid of him. He goes back to Pittsburgh. And they, <laughs> by se- by the end of 79, even though he's on that team, he's yeah. gone in the middle of the year. Well, they talk about him going back to Pittsburgh, him showing up and being like, my arm's dead. Like, yeah. I, I, him telling the, the pitching coach, like, I can't throw. I just wanted to end my career as a pirate. And they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Kind of sucks for us. But a story about him and uh, the Rangers. Yep. Um, he wanted to drink in the hotel bar. Yeah. It was an uh, unwritten rule that players weren't allowed to drink in the hotel bar because that's where the manager was allowed to drink. Yeah. And he was like, no, that's insane. I'm going to drink wherever I want. And got into it with the manager and they were like, all right, get out of here. Like that was the thing was he couldn't get into, it seemed like he couldn't get into an argument and resolve it. No. And it must just be his personality or something where yes, there are injustices to people like you that still happen. Like I get that, but he never, like the way his attitude was is the rules never apply to me. Exactly. And the, these are rules that are not race-based or culture-based. These are rules that are just like, don't be an asshole-based. I feel like he got this mentality through the meth, or not th- through the amphetamines, through the the coke. That It almost has this effect on people's personalities where they try not to take responsibility for their own actions. And honestly, as someone who has had issues with substance abuse before... I've, I know what that feels like. I yeah. know what that feels like, especially when you're kicking ass at life where, sorry to get so personal, but I mean, like, I, I can understand it, like, where he's coming from is that, like, when you're kicking ass at life and you're covering up all of the shitty things that you're doing yeah. and the shitty things you do to people that you actually love and care about, the rules don't apply to you. And then you mix in all of those substances. It just is your emotions and your shitty behavior on steroids. Yep. And you think, oh, they're always trying to bring me down. This, you know, society, my family, everything is trying to bring me down. I'm going to do me and just deal with the consequences later or not at all. And it's you look back on those moments and doc does too. Yes. But for me, you look back on those moments and you go, what the hell? Why was, why would I do that? You're just racked with regret and hate yourself. Yep. So I get it, but it just sucks. Yeah. 
all right, so let's uh, let's wrap this up. We're getting yeah. long into into this doc, and and yeah. it makes sense because doc is, is so interesting. Um, I just want to bring up his post career. Post career, yeah, because it is important. Because he got into advocating for drug rehabilitation. He wanted players to be anonymous. Uh, anonymous. God, I can't even like, anonymous. <laughs> It's ridiculous, but he wanted the, them to be able to be admitted that way so that it wasn't a big deal when, when guys needed to have drug rehab. They don't feel shame. Exactly. He wanted that. He wanted drugs to essentially be out of baseball. Mm-hmm. And he really, his post career was a lot about that and a lot about um, getting prisoners and ex prisoners to lead better lives. Like he was really a, a, a an inspirational coach kind of thing. Yeah. He, tried to help others through his mistakes. Yes, yes. And kept referencing this acid no-hitter as a... Shameful moment. Shameful moment. When people, a lot of the times, comedians or, you know, Robin Williams, that kind of would talk about it. They'd be like, whoa, isn't that crazy? Isn't that cool? And he'd be like, no, it's and not. we're I- guilty of doing it right now. Yeah, I w- exactly. That's the thing. It kind of sucks, but it's you realize it, you know? But he was saying he would rather not have a no-hitter and not have pitched a game on acid. Yeah. Like, he, he would have rathered that, which is kind of ridiculous to say, but it's the way he felt post-career that it was a mistake to be <laughs> jacked up all the time. Yeah, it's crazy. And then uh, by 2007, he needs a liver transplant Yeah, because of all his drinking. And he can't get it because of his sickle cell trait and what have you he did to his body. And... It was also the amphetamines. Amphetamine, yeah. Yeah, they they, uh, take a toll on your liver. And despite what he did to rectify his life, on uh, December 19th, 2008, he ended up dying after needing the liver transplant. And it's a sad end to a life that could have been so much more but was so colorful and so interesting. Yeah, I, I... After the research, I like to think about all the positive things he did. Exactly. Not the... Like, if anybody brought this up, to me, talking about Doc Ellis, I would bring up all of the stuff he did, like post career, as opposed to the acid, yeah, no hitter. I agree. Which that's why I love researching these guys and love doing this podcast. So, totally. Thank you all very much. Hey, everybody! Thanks for listening to that podcast. This is just a stock message at the end of all of our podcasts. So we hope you enjoy. You listen to whatever athlete that was. Give us a follow at the Sports Experience Podcast on Instagram. Also, myself at Sequin Comedy on Instagram. Also, Totola Dominic on Instagram. Just follow us all around. If you have any suggestions for any athletes you want us to do, shoot us an email at the Sports Experience Podcast at gmail.com. And we always are recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much.